All right, so um, just to kind of bring us up to speed, we've been going through the books of history and kind of finishing up that run. Um, and we'll, we'll finish that up tonight as we talk about... Um, as we talk about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. But just to kind of give us some context of where we're coming from and where we're going, I want us to think about from the beginning, um, really if you're thinking about what's a good way, or at least a simple way for, to remember how the Old Testament functions, what's the, the span of it, and to be able to do that in a quick in a quick sense, I want to, I want to point you to a couple things. I want, to think, I want you to think first of four events. Okay? Four events. Creation, fall, flood, and tower. Alright? So creation. We already talked about this. Somebody said it was we're talking about prayer. God did what? He created all things. He's the sovereign creator of all things, right? He created all things for his glory. glory. That's right. So we see that creation and we see the fall. What happens there? God creates mankind. He created mankind good as a reflection of his glory, right? We see this in, in, in fact, in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. And so um, God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Made to display the glory of God to the ends of the earth. But what happened? Sin. Sin. Uh, sin. Man, man and woman, are our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they ate the forbidden fruit. They rejected God's king. They did what they thought was right. Tempted to sin by the devil, but they are individually accountable, not only for themselves, right? The Bible teaches us that Adam acted not only for himself, but for all mankind. So now, instead of being, instead of like they were made in being holy and happy, uh, the catechism that, that my family's using teaches us, they, they became sinful and miserable, right? So this is the fall. Then we see the flood, Right? This is where God judges mankind. Um, yet there we see how God provides for uh, one man and his family. Though they are sinful as well, they found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So he delivers them, and it's a picture of his salvation. Uh, but even after that, what happens? Everything's supposed to be perfect now, right? Adam, I mean, not Adam, but, but Noah was good. He was great. This was fantastic. He made this new covenant, right? The Noahic covenant. Everything's good now. Yes? He got drunk. Yeah. Right? So we see the same things happening over again, right? Sin continues on in the world. So creation, fall, flood, and tower. We see this display even of Noah's descendants. Instead of scattering and, uh, and spreading the glory of God to the ends of creation, what do they say? We will we'll make a name for ourselves, right? They build a tower trying to reach up to God, right? Just like mankind, isn't it? Trying to build our way up to to Godhood, trying to build our way up to God. And God says, nope, not going to let that happen. And he confounds their language. Okay? And so we see creation, fall, flood, tower. Then I want you to think about four groups. Okay? We're going to pick up the pace here. So we see uh, patriarchs first. Abraham. Abraham. Abraham was a good, godly man. That's why God picked him, right? No, he was a idol worshiper, just like the rest of his family. Just like all mankind, right? But God sets Abraham aside and he says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through you will every family of the nations be blessed. Um, so Abraham, then his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, right? So we see the patriarchs. Then we see the judges, right? Moses, uh, and then Joshua, and then all through a whole book with that title, right? So these are not courtroom judges, right? They are they're more military leaders, right? So um, that the nation the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, they they stray, they worship other gods, and what does God do? He allows them to be dispersed, dis, well, to be taken to be taken down by 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 foreign invaders, and so they cry out to God, and God delivers them, and they were rejoice and repent for a while and then they go back to doing the same thing. Why? Because there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 21-25. Which leads us to the next group of people. Right? The kings. Samuel, the last of the judges, he appoints a king. Right? Not just not what, not what Samuel wanted. Right? This is 
the one that the people wanted, right? They said, we want a king like the rest of the nations, right? Who leads us in, brings us back out to war. One that's tall and handsome and all those kinds of things. And, they, and, and so God picks one that's just like what, what Israel wants. And it's Saul. Saul stood a head, a head taller than everybody else, but he didn't have the right stuff. Right? So we see uh, that displayed that throughout his, throughout his lifetime. God says, I will actually talk a little bit about Saul tonight toward the end. So God takes the kingdom away from him, gives him to someone better. Not because David himself is better, but because of the Lord's faithfulness. So we see then, so then that begins this line, this promise that God has made. Uh, to David and to his offspring, that there will always be a king from his from his descendancy on the throne forever. And we see that pictured in the New Testament. So we see the kings, but there's problems with the kings too, right? As we've been already been talking about on Sunday mornings, David, David's not this promised seed that we saw back in Genesis 3.15, because he sins. Then his son Solomon, we think, man, he's the wisest man that's ever lived, right? He builds the temple. He's He's amazing. He has all this wealth. And, but no, he sins too. His heart's led astray and he worships foreign gods. His son Rehoboam is, is very prideful and tries to make a display of power. And you know what happens? Ten of the tribes move away. And they say, you know what? We're going to do our own thing. Thank you very much. And the kingdom splits. So, But we see there, though, is what happens. The king is functioning as the what? You remember? He's the... Covenant what? We're going to get there, right? But the, 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 the prophets, our next group, they function as the, the covenant watchdogs. But what, are the, what do the kings do? They're the covenant representative. Yeah. Very good. They're, they're the covenant representative. So, so goes the king, so goes the people. Right? So God deals directly with the nation based on the obedience or disobedience of the king. And so as the kings are straying and not doing their job, God brings along this other group, the covenant watchdogs, the prophets. That's our fourth group there. Okay, So four, four events, four groups, two dates. Two dates. Why two dates? Why not just one? Well, because there's now two nations, right? There's other tribes that left. They formed their own nation. They, they gave it a real original name, too. Israel. Interesting. Right? So the southern kingdom is... Judah. So we see, but we see these two dates here. Why? Because both of them fail. Both of these nations fail. Seven twenty-two is the fall of Israel to what nation? There we go. Assyria. That's right. Assyria comes in, basically wipes them off the map, and the rest, and all those tribes are not really seen or heard of again. They're just gone. Uh, intermarried with other with other people groups, they're they're no longer identifiable as a people. Then 586 BC, this is when the Southern Kingdom falls. The Southern Kingdom is called what? Judah, and it falls to what to what empire? Babylon. All right. So because just like God had promised them back in the Mosaic Covenant that if they if they were not faithful to the covenant, then there would be curses that would come with that. The land would not be fruitful. And eventually they will be removed from the land. And this is exactly what happens when Babylon comes a-knocking. So 722, 586. So for about 70 years, the southern kingdom is exiled into Babylon. And then God, in his providence, in his grace, brings them back. And that brings us back to our final category, two seasons. Two seasons. First is return. We're going to talk about that tonight, so I'm not going to step on that. We'll get there. And then afterwards... Um, even though we, we think everybody's back, we're reaffirming the covenant. This is great. And those of you that remember our series in Nehemiah, you remember. How does Nehemiah end? They find the books, don't they? They find the books. That, and there's good things happening. But then when Nehemiah comes back to check some years later, they're back to doing the same things they were doing before. They're not honoring the Sabbath. Some foreigner named Tobiah the Ammonite, the guy that was trying to shut down the whole operation to begin with, he's living in the temple, right? It's a big old mess. And so we see um, after this, this period of silence. God says, you're not listening, so I'm going to stop speaking for a while. Does that mean that God is not, God, he's not at work in the midst of his creation? You bet he's not. He is always at work. 
we can see that. We can talk about that some other time. Probably, I, I imagine, because we're getting into a New Testament, uh, we'll talk about maybe a little bit of what happened during that 400 years. There you go. I like that too. All right, so there you go. Old Testament in a nutshell. Four, four events, creation, fall, flood, tower. Four groups, patriarchs, judges, kings, and prophets. Two dates, 722 B.C., 586 B.C., and then two seasons, the season of return and a season of silence. Old Testament, right there. Okay? So here's where we are tonight. I'm giving you a little bit of a a glance at our our books tonight. We're not going to talk about all those things because we'll get into them in detail as we look at the books. So the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are the ones we'll start off with tonight. Did you know there were originally one book? I didn't know that. I thought it was pretty cool. So, and by the way, let me just let me just say this: this lesson tonight is adapted from from what Catalyst Missions teaches to pastors uh, regarding Old Testament survey. So this is this is it, it's like you're in you're in part of a Catalyst class right now. Um, I, I love getting to work with Catalyst. Again, what we do with Catalyst is we we um, and our church is doing with Catalyst is we make theological education available to pastors and women. In other in other places where theological education is not accessible, right? Because a great many of the pastors in the world have no theology education whatsoever. That needs to change, and so that's one of the reasons why, friends. This is why what we're doing here right now, because our goal is that our people, as they grow and and are able to again worship, grow, serve, as we grow in our understanding of the Word. That we don't keep that to ourselves, but that we take it to this world that's all around us, that's lost and dying and in desperate need of a Savior. And we want to do that not just with our people, but also equipping and sending out pastors, church planners. That's the long-term goal, right? So we do that. We want to do that locally here in the midst of our own church, but we also want to do that internationally through, through, uh, through strategic partnerships with groups like Catalyst Missions. So this is tonight what, what, I've, what I've been able to teach pastors in Nepal on Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra. So let's get started. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah originally constituted one book. It tells us about, about the Jews returned from exile just as God promised through Jeremiah. Jeremiah promised that this would happen. Uh, God using him for that message. Yet it shows us still, even though they're returning, something's different. Something's, something's still not right. Maybe God's people and God's place under God's rule, but it's imperfect. It's there's something that's just ah, we're not there yet. So many of God's promises have yet to be fulfilled. Right? So um, the things that we do see, they're not nearly as glorious as what the prophets had promised. So, with that said, where where are the new heavens and the new earth that Isaiah spoke of, which is supposed to accompany the return? Why don't we? Ha- why don't the? Why don't these people? who are coming back, why don't they have new hearts? Right? Why don't they have new hearts like Jeremiah predicted? Where is the great and glorious and magnificent temple that Ezekiel saw? And further, why hasn't everyone come back? That's a question that looms as we continue on into the book of Esther. The people in that book are still in a foreign land, for crying out loud. So after the exile, some things just aren't as predicted and promised. But there are good things that are happening. Many of God's promises uh, still have yet to be fulfilled, though. So let's talk first about Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, let's look at context. Ezra the priest um, may have been the one that assembled this book. The, the history really recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah spans from the time the Jews began to return to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. to over 100 years after that first return. Uh, so Ezra himself gives us this historical context, and this is going to be our first passage for the night. Let's look at Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. With that said, as you're, as you're turning there, we have to remember again, what's happening with the Jews at this point? They have been exiled for 70 years. 70 years away from the land that God had promised. And then we read this in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. You can read that for me. Now, now the first year. 
year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and then he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel, he is God, which is in Jerusalem. Whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Wow. I think we referenced this a little bit last week, didn't we, Pastor Cody? So... With that said, then this is kind of this is showing us what's happened. We've been in exile, but God is, as we've already seen, the the, the heart of the king is like channels of water in, in the hands of the Lord, right? He directs it wherever He wills, and so um, even this pagan king is being directed by the Lord to send His people back to His place. So our theme. Let's look at our theme. Actually, you've got a you've got a blank to fill out there. Um, the theme of Ezra and Nehemiah can be said like this. God is renewing the covenant by restoring his people. He's restoring the temple. He's restoring true worship. And he's restoring Jerusalem. But that's not the end. And it doesn't fulfill all, it doesn't fulfill all the great prophecies. Thus, his people still look to the future. They're still looking to the future. Okay? All right. So, with that being said, with that being said, then let's look at a couple of themes that we see, uh, some themes that we see running throughout this book. First of all, I want us to think about how God initiates and the people respond. God initiates and the people respond. So we're going to be we're still there in Ezra chapter one. That'll be that'll be our starting place here. It says so as we as we start here from the beginning of the book. There's this focus. On God's faithfulness to his word and his promises to David. And therefore, there's this focus on his commitment to his plan of redemption. I love that. So recall then the the reference to Jeremiah that we saw in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. Jeremiah had prophesied that the exile would last only 70 years. Just as promised, 70 years later... God moved Cyrus' heart to allow the Jews to return home. So let's look back there in our passage there. Now, instead of just 1 through 4, let's look at 5 and 6. Ezra chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Who can read that for me? Go for it. The heads of the fathers, house of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around him encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. Amen. So God initiates this chain of events that's going to take place to restore his people. And they responded. Right? So first so we saw again first God initiates and his people responded. Then we see the people return and rebuild. The people return and rebuild. We're looking there from chapter 1, verse 7 to chapter 6, verse 22. So, the, so now God begins to provide piece by piece all that the people need to rebuild their community and all their way of life in the land under God's appointed leaders. So with that, uh, let's look now at uh, verses 7 and 8. Same chapter, Ezra chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. I got it. Also, King Satris brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had, had carried away from Jerusalem, and put in the house of his gods. And Cyprus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Merthodot, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Shishabar, the prince of Judah. Man, that's a lot. That's a, hey, that's a lot of names. Goodness gracious. So I want you to see this, though. So people are helping them with, with silver and gold. But look, also, you see where they're going into the, they're bringing in, they're bringing back out all the things that have been stolen from the temple, right? This is no small thing. This probably includes the golden altar, the golden table, the golden lampstands, the golden basins, the massive bronze pillars, the stands, the basins so large that 
uh, that 1 Kings chapter 7 says they can't be weighed. Right? There's no scale that exists that can adequately weigh these things. This was an enormous amount of wealth. And they were irreplaceable. And God has miraculously restored them to the people so they could reinstitute proper temple worship again. This is incredible. All right, so let's look over at chapter 2, verse 2. Let me read chapter 2, verse 2 for me. These came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Relaya, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Benach. Good luck. <laughs> hey. Alright. So a couple of there there is a few things I want to point out here. Zerubbabel, right? Uh, which means literally out of Babel, was a descendant uh, of David and represents God's faithfulness. Remember, well, let's 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 get there. Sorry, I'm I'm excited about this. Uh, Jeshua, it's another variant pronunciation of Joshua, Yehoshua, is a Levite. Uh, so God restored both the line of the kings. And the line of the priests. The, the altar and temple were rebuilt in chapters uh, 3 through 6 and finished around 20 years after the people's return, so around 516 BC. So they celebrated the completion of, of all of this by keeping the Passover. What must that have been like after 70, even 90 years to come together in the land? with your family and to have the Passover. Amen. One of the most sacred moments in the calendar for the Jews. And now they're back home and they're getting to do this again. And remember, we also know that, that because we what we read in First Chronicles, that they know exactly where their land is because they know their descendants or the, their ancestors from the book of Chronicles. So they are back where their ancestors did this very thing decades and decades and decades ago. This is humongous. Because after the way everything was left when Babylon came in, only a miracle of God could bring them back here to do this. And yet there's a bigger miracle that is in play here that all of the Old Testament is moving forward to. Because Israel has to come back here to this place in order for the seed of the woman to be born that will crush the head of the serpent. All of this is happening all at the same time. So again, this is, again, so many things are moving here. Let's look over now at chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, verse 12. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of father's household, the old men had seen the first temple, but the loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. So we see this picture now. The temples, or even the foundation's been laid, right? So some are rejoicing over the new temple. Meanwhile, some are weeping because it doesn't compare to the glory of the old one. So this implies, again, that God's not done yet. There's something. This can't be it, right? We can't be going backward. Redemptive history must be moving forward. So there's got to be something greater that's coming. All right? So let's look now at uh, letter C there, another blank for you to fill in. Now, so everything's moving up, things are good, and the people sin and repent. The people sin and repent. This is chapter 7 through 10. Another, after another big jump forward in time, chapter 7 begins nearly 60 years after the completion of the temple. Ezra is leading this second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. So let's look at chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. We'll get a little close-up here on, on Ezra. Who can read that for me? From the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. Yes, ma'am, keep going. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Hmm. Notice, notice. It says that the hand, of the, the good hand of his God was upon him, right? And it says, notice that he's Ezra studies and what does studies and does the word of the Lord before he even presumes to teach it. This is great wisdom for our people today. 
right? Do you want to be a teacher? Are you studying the law, the word of the Lord? Are you obeying, right? Do we understand it? Are we applying it? And then yes, are we teaching it too? Okay? So many Jews, though, have intermarried with surrounding pagan nations. And this is a grievous sin in the eyes of the Lord. So let's look over at chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. I'll go ahead and read that for us. It says, When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, uh, so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, and I plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, ouch, and sat down astonished. So I want you to notice here in this passage, first of all, yikes, right? Visible demonstration of what that looks like. I'm going to let Tony lead the way there. Tony's already been I have small children. That, that, is, uh, that is reenacted in my house quite a bit. That's, uh, but I want you to see this, though. Some of your translations that might, might be the, the, the phrase, the holy race. Um, but really, the literally, and I think the New King James says this, uh, the word is literally seed. So Israel was a carrier of this seed promise from way back in Genesis 3.15. Intermarrying with the surrounding nations would lead to them assimilating into pagan culture, into them abandoning their unique relationship with their true God, with the one true God, and risk losing that promise. If Satan can't kill off God's people through exile, surely, surely he will try to corrupt them by polluting their families and their worship. Do you feel, do you ever feel that way? Like God, like if Satan can't get you one way, he's going to try and get you another? This is what we see throughout the Old Testament, right? And throughout the New Testament. But praise God that the very things that God, the, not God, the, the very things that Satan uses to try to destroy his God's covenant people are the very things that God uses to advance his kingdom. So, um, praise the Lord. So, Ezra responds in this. He responds with this with, with a prayer in verse six through or chapter nine, verses six through fifteen, acknowledging the people's sin and at the same time God's holiness. So let's let's look real quickly at Ezra chapter nine, verse fifteen. Ezra nine, verse fifteen. Who can read that for me? Oh. Hey, that's right. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remembrance as it is to this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. Mm. Amen. So, sin separates us from God. And it makes us unable to stand in His presence. In chapter 10, the the people repent, taking responsibility for their behavior. And for taking and taking action then to separate themselves. So now they're they're trying to go about doing the very thing that they know they're supposed to do. Repentance is not just a feeling. If you have children, you've probably had that conversation, right? You can't just be weepy and say, I'm sorry, and then perk up the next second because everything's over, right? I'm sorry. So can I can I go get the can I go get candy now or can I go get you know this thing? Right? This is that's not repentance. Repentance is not just a feeling, it is an action to restore right behavior before God. See, the exiles have returned and they've rebuilt the temple, but God has not yet completed his plan of salvation. Look there at uh, chapter 9 verse 8. And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and give us a peg in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Hmm. A, a measure, right? A little relief, some others, uh, some other translations say. A little relief from bondage. So the question then is, when will more relief come? When will a, a greater measure of revival come? That leads us to our next point. Nehemiah returns. And the people do what? They rebuild the walls. They rebuild the walls. Okay, 
So now let's move over to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapters 1 through 7. Nehemiah, what's he doing as the, as the book begins? Is he in the promised land? No, he's in Susa. He's in the capital of the, of the Persian Empire. He's serving the Persians as a government official. So he hears that Jerusalem's walls are still broken down nearly 100 years into the return. The people, the Davidic line, the priests the priest led worship were all very vulnerable to Israel's enemies, both militarily and morally. And so what does he do? He weeps and he prays. So let me quickly read this passage to you from his prayer. This is from Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and verses 10 and 11, if you want to read along. So Nehemiah prays this. He says, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of, of, the, of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Now we move on down to verse 10. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who despise, or sorry, who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. So he requests God's providence. He requested, again, that God would provide uh, for God's glory that God might be glorified in it. All right? So Nehemiah then returns to Jerusalem around 10 years after Ezra. He convinces the people to join in with him in rebuilding the walls. And so we see this here in chapter 2, verse 20. Who can read that for me? Right. So this this displays God's sovereignty and human responsibility right next to each other. Okay. The Jews then experience opposition from their neighbors. Chapter four, verses one through three, they mock first, but the wall progresses by God's grace. Well, then mocking turns into alarm and anger. Then finally, a plot to attack the builders outright. Nehemiah arms the builders, which are which then deters their enemies. Next day, they try to slander Nehemiah's reputation. Again, doesn't it sound like they're just trying to circle, right? Hit from every possible angle. So they slander Nehemiah's reputation in chapter 6. And then Satan sometimes even tries to attack God's people, especially, um, let's see, I have a typo here. Um, So regardless, in the midst of all of this though, what happens? How does God's providence move forward in this? The people complete the wall in less than a year. They complete the wall in less than a year. And that's, and that's with one hand on a weapon and the other hand on, on a tool for, for rebuilding the wall. Amazing. All right, so let's look there at chapter 7, verse 73. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple and servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Amen. All right? You can remember, actually, similar passages in Joshua, where the Israelites uh, first took the land. This is, this is a re-beginning. Right? It's a new beginning here in the promised land. All right, so next let's talk about how the people rejoice and relapse. They rejoice and they relapse. This is chapters 8 through 13. So the covenant's reestablished. Uh, we can see that there in chapter 8, verse 8. I'll read that for us real quick. So, so they read directly or distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Right? Think about the people's reactions as, re- as they hear the law read and expounded. Verse 6 in this chapter says that they shouted, Amen! Amen! 
Right? May it be so. But then it says in verse 9 that they also wept. They realize that they've broken the law. Because God's word is like a mirror. Right? It, re- it reflects and reveals our sin. So they realize they've broken the law. But the priests tell the people not to mourn, but to celebrate at reading God's word. The people rightly mourned their sin and then rightly celebrated receiving God's grace in their lives. The people bind themselves again to God uh, by the Mosaic Covenant. So this is not a new covenant. It's coming back to the old covenant. There in chapter 10, verse 29. Let's look there real quick. Chapter 10, verse 29. Are joined with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of God our Lord and His ordinance and His statutes. Okay, so they're recommitting themselves to the Mosaic Covenant. However, they quickly start breaking it again. They work on the Sabbath, something they're not supposed to do, and they violate it, chapter 13. They intermarry with the surrounding nations again. This age-old problem is that the law, though they have heard it with their ears, it is not written on their hearts. The people had returned and renewed this covenant, the old covenant, but it was nothing like the kingdom they were were expecting and hoping for. As great as it is to be home, it's clear that this is not the full arrival of God's kingdom. This is not the new covenant. It's not new hearts. It's not the new heaven and the new earth. There is still sin and death in the world. Isn't that a pretty picture to end on at the end of the life? And if that's all there was, we, we would have reason to be sad. But the story continues. So let's look now at Esther. I love this book. Uh, Esther, let's look at context. Esther, the book of Esther, records uh, events of roughly the same time, about 50 years after the first wave of exiles had returned to Jerusalem. Um, But still about a decade or two before Ezra brought his wave back. All right, so there's our time. Uh, However, they're they're not located in the land. They're back in Susa, right? Back where Nehemiah will come from later on, right? So they are not located in the land, but back in Susa, where the Jews are still living in exile. Interestingly enough, nothing is said about God in this book. Right? This makes the purpose and application of this book a little difficult at first. However, uh, I think we can, we can, based on what the rest of the Bible says together, and then we can, as we, as we think about this book together, I think we can see some things become clear. Our theme. Our theme for this book is... God protects his people, even if we can't see how he is working. God protects his people, even if we can't see how he is working. In a world where God is invisible, the faithful can often wonder if God is doing anything at all among us. Right? You ever feel that way? Absolutely. But it's important to remember that God's God's acts of providence in our world are most commonly done with a hidden hand in a way that is quite easily overlooked when we are otherwise just going about our normal lives. And again, I want to remind you, what is providence? Okay? To do that, let's go back to our theology of the doctrine of God. Okay? So God is the sovereign creator of all things. Right? He created everything that exists with certain properties with which they are supposed to exist and to act. Okay? A rock doesn't do much of anything except sit there. Right? Why? Because God created it that way, and he actively maintains its properties that he created it with to act in that way. God created your lungs to breathe. And so every breath that you breathe, it, it's not breathe, it's not, you're not breathing just because God created you that way. It's because Colossians tells us that in, in Christ all things consist and are held together. So... With that said, then, this is God's creation. This is God's government, right? His, um, yes. So with that, then, providence is God directing his creation in its normal ways according to its normal properties for his purpose and plan. Does that make sense? The difference, then, with miracles is miracles are where God, because, again, by him all things consistent are held together, 
when God temporarily suspends the, the properties of the way his creation works for his purpose and plan. Providence is God directing his creation according to its properties for his purpose. Miracles are God, are God, is God simply uh, temporarily um, dispelling or setting aside those properties and causing his creation to work in a way that is contrary to its properties. Does that make sense? And so, some, and this is a good thing for us to talk about because sometimes we 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 assume that something is a miracle when really it's just providence. Is it no less a work of the Lord? No, all of it's the Lord because He's the sovereign Creator and Governor of all things, right? So, with that being said, then we we can think then we think that God's not at work because we don't see miracles. However, God's doing. Loads of things all around us, all the time. Because he, he made things good in a right way, in a good way. And it's good for those things to function with the properties that he created them to have. Even though this world is marred and twisted by sin, it still bears the fingerprints of its creator with the properties that God created to, to, to function with. And so let's then look real quickly because we don't have a lot of time, let's blaze our way through Esther here and see God's providence at work. Okay? So, um, let's see. Um, sometimes it's actually that subtlety that God, that, that God is operating with that makes his, his deliverance all the more powerful. Let me see that here. You see that, that uh, outline there of, of the chapters in Esther? Let's move on to the summary. The first two chapters, uh, we see this young Jewish girl named Hadassah. This is one of the reasons why I love this book, right? Hadassah means pure and lovely. And so, uh, but she is get, because she is living in Susa with her uncle Mordecai, uh, she is given, much like, um, much like Koreans under, under Japanese uh, occupation, they're not allowed to be to be called by their Jewish names. They have to take on Persian names. It's a way of kind of cementing in their presence as no longer Jews. They are now living amongst the Persians. That's detrimental to somebody's identity, don't you think? You can't use your own language anymore. You can't use your own name anymore. You now use our names. You now use our history and our culture and our language. And so that's why we call her Esther. Esther is actually her Persian name. Isn't that interesting? Same thing with like, we hear about Daniel, right? Daniel is a, is a, a Jewish name, but his real name was Belteshazzar, where his Persian name, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, there, are these guys Persian or Babylonian names. They're foreign names, right? Just interesting for, for us to think about. So, um, so this girl named Hadassah, she rises to King Xerxes' favor. Uh, he makes her his queen, and her cousin, sorry, her cousin, uh, Mordecai, overhears a plot to kill King Xerxes. And so he informs Esther of this. She alerts the king, and the plot is stopped. In chapter 3, the Jews face a crisis. A man named Haman is promoted into the king's court and is offended when Mordecai won't pay homage to him. Uh, for revenge, Haman seeks to pass a decree to have all the Jews of Persia exterminated by a popular uprising. Right? So, so Haman doesn't personally do the deed, but he has it done so that everybody else can take accountability for it instead of him. For, um, so, uh, let's see. Mordecai persuades Esther to help. She petitions the king to spare the Jews and he relents. Meanwhile, Haman is, is first forcibly first forced to publicly honor Mordecai, the turning of the tables, for having previously helped the king. And then, after his plot is thwarted, he is executed on the very gallows that he built to have Mordecai murdered. So, some some theological themes that we see here as we as we uh, close up our time tonight. One, first, God will judge. So, we see the villain. Uh, the villain here is Haman. Again, the point is God will judge. God will judge. The villain here is Haman. He's full of pride, arrogance, attempted murder, attempted genocide. 
Worst of all, he has directed he has directed his sin specifically and directly against God's people, which means that he is against God himself. His evil is not random, it's not merely selfish, it is willfully and intentionally directed against the people and purposes of God. Haman is an archetype of the enemies of God. Alright? But we see this uh, in the story that in God's providence, all of Haman's plans backfire on him. This is, this is a great picture of how, how Satan's plans are thwarted throughout the Bible. Right? Um, so chapter 9, verse 2 says, Then all those, Israel, those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. <laughs> God does judge the wicked, sometimes even in this life. And so Christians should have peace about trials in this life and be confident in the hope of God's sure judgment against the wicked. All right? So first, God will judge. Second, God works through circumstances. God works through circumstances. Okay? How does Mordecai persuade Esther, or Hadassah, I just love saying that name for some reason, to rescue her people at the potential cost of her own life? How does he do it? Mordecai responds with this question to her in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Wow. Mordecai believes that there is a purpose to Esther's becoming queen and that her purpose is made clear by the opportunity presented to her to help save God's people. God uses earthly instruments like people's actions to accomplish his plans throughout the scriptures toward the end uh, toward the end that he intends. Mordecai is telling Esther that she would understand herself and her queenship to be the instrument by which God accomplishes his purposes. He does not need any particular person or circumstance to achieve his purposes, but he has ordained in his graciousness to use people like Esther and us to spread his word and to redeem his people. There are no accidents or coincidences in this life. God guides and directs all of his creation, including our circumstances of our lives. We should then carefully examine the situations that God puts us in and, and look for opportunities for evangelism and for service to the church. Our circumstances always need to be interpreted through Scripture and with guidance from other Christians. However, they are a tool for understanding God's will in our lives. All right? So again, we see, um, again, God will judge. God works through circumstances. And then lastly, I know we're over. We're almost done. God will save his people. And I think this is really helpful for us as we think about the end of the historical books of the Old Testament. God will save his people. The theological point here is that God zealously protects his people. This is one major theme throughout the entire Bible, and here it's clearly the point in this little story of Esther. It's, it's not always clear at the time how God is working or how things will turn out in the end, but God delivers his people, and he always carries his redemptive plan forward. And, and note the way that uh, the way that God achieved Israel's deliverance in this situation really did maximize his own glory and pretty much prevented Mordecai or Esther from taking much credit or boasting really about anything. In fact, God's purposes and salvation in this book are even deeper and more meaningful than the events on the surface might suggest. So do you remember, if we were to go back to 1 Samuel, do you remember how Saul's kingship failed? When, when the kingdom, as Samuel said, was torn away from Saul, as Saul was, was tearing Samuel's garment, it's because in verse Samuel chapter 15, uh, it says, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took King Agag of the, of the Amalekites alive, hmm. and utterly destroyed all the people at the edge of the, sto- of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, so not all the people, and the best of the sheep, and the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So 
Then Samuel comes, right? Samuel comes and says, what's going on here? Why have you disobeyed the Lord? And Saul says, I haven't disobeyed the Lord. Verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Right? But what did God tell him to do? Everybody. All the things. Right? And he says, well, I'm trying to offer up sacrifices and this and that and the people and that kind of thing. He says, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And he has rejected you from being king over Israel. Chapter down to verse 32. And Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, to me. So Agag came, uh, came to him cautiously. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel, the new King James here, and Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Yikes. All right? So it was when he refused to carry out God's command. This is what Saul did. That's when he, he was supposed to just totally destroy the Amalekites and their king Agag. All right? So now back to Esther chapter 2, verse 5. So in Shushan, the citadel, was there, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, right? Who was Mordecai a descendant of? King Saul, okay? Now, chapter 9, verse 24, says, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, Agagite, right? Uh, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and to cast poor, that means the lot, to consume them and destroy them. So who so who is Haman a descendant of? King Agag. In God's kindness, his rescue of his people results in the redemption for the line of Saul. Centuries after that disobeyed command. Certainly no accident uh, that this genealogical detail is brought to light in the book of Esther. Again, Christians today should be able to rest content knowing that God's deliverance is a sure thing. And that while may he, he may choose to use us as instruments at times, the glory is always His. So, there you go. Wow, look at that timing. That was amazing. Yeah. Man, like two seconds beforehand, it would have totally thrown me off, right? So, with that said, we'll pick back up here next week. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the Old Testament. Lord, it is good. Lord, we agree with your word that it is sweeter than honey to our lips. It is good. It is wonderful. It is the tastiest of foods. And so, Father, would you open our eyes that we behold wonderful things from your word. Help us as we leave now, carrying your word with us. Help us to use these things that we learn here very quickly and from a 10,000 foot view and help us to really dig into the scriptures to day by day as looking into a mirror behold your glory through your word Lord that we would be like uh, like Ezra we would be people who seek to study the word we would seek to do the word and we would seek to teach the word Lord we love you and we thank you help us now to treasure and to obey it we pray in Jesus name Amen